Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer business and other interesting fields of endeavor. I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Hi, John. Who's our first guest this week? Our first guests are the co-founders and co-owners of Barreled Souls Brewing Company in Saco, Maine. They built Barreled Souls into one of the most popular breweries in the hyper-competitive Maine craft beer market. As the brewery name implies, all of their highly acclaimed beers undergo primary fermentation in oak barrels. We're about to learn how and why. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Matt Mills and Chris Schofield. Thank you very much for uh, joining us this morning, all the way from the uh, northeast there. How is the, uh, how's the weather up there now ever since I left? Is it uh, starting to cool down a little bit? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cooled off a lot, actually. Yeah, you guys were here in kind of like the hottest part of the summer, right? which for us is 92. Oh. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's a calm 78 out right now. It's very comfortable. So, Matt, I'm going to kind of start with you here. What was your first hospitality job, and how long before you realized that you would devote your career to food, wine, and beer? Uh, so, yeah, my first uh, kind of foray into food and alcohol, well, I scooped ice cream in high school, but real first start would have been uh, the Cliff House uh, after my freshman year of college uh, during the summer. Uh, I got a bartending position. It's a big resort in southern Maine um, on the coast of York uh, area. And uh, I was basically just planning on taking a year off to transfer colleges because I didn't really enjoy where I was going. And uh, I'm still, you know, just taking that year off transferring, uh, waiting to go back. But uh, <laughs> I just fell in love with kind of the whole hospitality and alcohol industry pretty much right then. Um, I worked there for three years. And the last year I was there, I was actually still 20 for most of the year. And I was the beverage director for a multi-million dollar resort um, wow. when I couldn't even legally drink. Um, <laughs> right. I was supposed to spit out everything I had at tastings, but I was doing all the planning and organization um, for uh, – about a 400-room uh, hotel uh, with three restaurants and four banquet facilities. Um, and since then, I've uh, been to quite a few different high-end restaurants doing wine. And uh, mostly early on, beer was more of a hobby drinking, and wine was kind of my, my business, my, my livelihood, until the brewery when that kind of switched. Right, right, of course. So, I mean, you, you have a pretty extensive front-of-the-house experience in the food and beverage industry in addition to managing several high-end restaurants and their wine programs. I mean, you actually started your own retail wine company. How did those experiences, especially in curating wine lists and stocking a wine store, prepare you to own and manage a craft brewery and tap room? Um, I think in a few ways. One, uh, hospitality in our tap room is very important to us. And we set out to kind of go back to you know, pre-prohibition era, pre-refrigeration era, um, we definitely refrigerate everything, but uh, <laughs> right. yeah, your local your local bar was your local brewery. I mean, stuff wasn't distributed all around. Budweiser and whatever hadn't taken hold um, in the same way. So when you went to your local pub, they probably made the beer there um, and kind of this creation of community. Um, and that's something I kind of learned at working at private clubs and high-end restaurants that a lot of people really seek out to go out and drink and meet new people and have kind of a sense of community at their local and water hole, if you will. Um, and I also think that being involved in wine really gave us insight of how to do our bottle membership, which is a large portion of uh, the brewery's business, um, because I had done a lot of mailing wine lists um, for decades plus um, from California, and really how they curate their programs, how they take care of their customers, um, which we really try to mimic in the way that we do our bottle program. Nice, nice. So, Chris, where, where did you get your start at? Uh, well, I started homebrewing in college, actually. My, uh, for my 21st birthday, my dad got me a homebrew kit. And, uh, yeah, started, started then. That was, geez, when was that? 21st birthday, 2002, I guess. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it wasn't a Mr. Beer kit, right? What's that? It wasn't a Mr. Beer kit, right? 
I don't think it was actually. Yeah. <laughs> it was something there was a homebrew shop in Portsmouth, New Hampshire that was like all homebrew shops is run by some curmudgeon old British guy, you know. It was like whatever <laughs> what, whatever he had on stock is what we got. Yeah. Nice. But um yeah, so I did that and I kinda I was always into cooking and uh, you know, just creating things and so he, he thought it'd be a good fit and uh, and he was right. And, and so did that for a little while. Then I, I took a year off from school and worked at Federal Jack's Brew Pub at Kennebunkport, which is where Shipyard started yep. originally. Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I got to work on the old Peter Austin system, open fermentation, ringwood yeast. Like oh, that. wow. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty wild, like, first introductory into professional brewing. You know, it's, it's uh, quite, a, quite a different process. Um, yeah, and I did that for a year. Um, and then, yeah, I went back to school, got an engineering degree, um, moved to Texas, uh, worked there for a long time as an engineer, and I helped open a brew pub there. I, I, was, I met a guy through a homebrew club that owned a restaurant and was also a homebrewer and had had some of my beers and it wasn't, you know, making that good of beer. And, and so he wanted me to teach him how to homebrew, basically, or brew in general, and he wanted me to design the brew pub for him and so I did that for a year and it was, it was, it was awesome. I mean, it gave me an opportunity to design everything myself. You know, it's one thing to come in and brew somewhere where someone's built the system and right. built the recipe and everything. And, and, you know, I, I had done that, but I was like, can I do this from the ground up? Um, and, and it went great. Yeah. We, we got to production, we had eight beers. Um, and then that, that was when I really felt confident enough to do it myself. And then, Matt and I, like, obviously we had been friends since we were in fourth grade and we're ready to. Right. I mean, that was kind of like my next question. Like, when did you two meet? Uh, fourth grade. So we're coming up on 32 years together. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, I moved to Wells in uh, fourth grade and uh, Chris was already in Wells. And uh, yeah, we've pretty much been friends drinking beer ever since i think we waited a few more years to drink beer but pretty <laughs> right, close. Right, yeah pretty close yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's cold in maine <laughs> so when went along the time period through matt in the restaurants and you're in texas building out this brew pub like when did the idea come to kind of fruition that you guys wanted to start your own brewery why Chris was in Texas, uh, at least like once a year, we'd either meet up in Boston, go to some beer festivals, or I'd go down to Texas, or we'd go somewhere else. Um, and we kind of always had that, you know, intoxicated discussion about opening a brewery, the same way that people are like, oh, man, we should start a band. Yeah, we should start a band. <laughs> right. um, of course. So, uh, you know, uh, so probably like 14, 15 years ago, um, we kind of started having those like very preliminary, like we should do this. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, and then I think 12 years ago, we were just trying to figure this out. We drove from, uh, we flew into Portland, Oregon and drove all the way to San Diego with a group of friends in a minivan Holy and crap. did nothing but breweries and camping for two <laughs> weeks. Okay. Um, and we discovered the brewery, uh, out in Anaheim, Patrick Brew's place. Yes. Yep. Uh, on that trip. And I think the weird stuff that they were doing um, was kind of the first like tip off for us to be like, oh man, we could create something weird and new and make kind of different beers and experimental stuff all the time and have that be a business. Cause it seemed at that point, beer was kind of, you know, everyone made their year round beers, a few seasonal beers, but there wasn't nearly as much just, you can make what you want when you want and sell it, try a new thing. It's yeah. definitely core products were much more important. Um, and then a few years later, we joined the brewery membership and uh, went out and tried to drink through every bottle we bought in oh one my day gosh. with some friends. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> it was only like 40-something at that point. It wasn't as extreme as they are now, but yeah, it was still too much. I, uh, but yeah. I think that, that kind of really um, – that's when the discussion really started to take form. And then, uh, as Chris said, when he was able to basically design a brewery on someone else's dime – that we were like, yeah, we can make this work. Let's uh, come back to Maine together um, and go for it. Nice, nice. I mean, so what you're kind of saying is that the brewery in Anaheim was the spark that kind of really lit the flame for you to kind of do your own thing then. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that's true. Um, I think early on, obviously, a few years after that, there started to be more and more breweries um, in that vein opening up. Um, but, yeah, I would definitely say that the brewery was uh, – 
our earliest real inspiration of, of doing something. Um, and we actually just got to brew with them a couple of weeks ago. Nice. Uh, which was awesome. I mean, I, I mean, I love Patrick Rue. I mean, I mean, I know he's not part of those guys anymore and he's doing his own thing up in Napa and stuff, but like in the early days, I mean, we brewed a collaboration with him and did one here and did one out there. But like he, I mean, that place was definitely, I think a kickoff for a lot of people back in those days. I mean, especially like black Tuesday and some of their other, like their sour program and all that stuff is definitely, I think rooted in a lot of people that opened after that time kind of as inspiration for what a lot of us are doing now. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, hopefully out of those 40 bottles, they weren't like all like, uh, black Tuesdays and, uh, mocha. Yeah, there's, a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of black Tuesday, like their anniversary beer. Um, there was probably like a dozen like lower ABV sours and then yeah, like 30, 15 to 19% beers. Nice. There was five of us. It wasn't just the two of us. But, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember when, when that first came out, me and a buddy split a bottle of Black Tuesday, and we got about halfway through, and we we're like, yeah, we can't finish this bottle, dude. We were already, like, rocked. <laughs> we were, yeah. it, was, yeah. it was heavy dose for sure. So with Chris's background in brewing and your background in managing restaurants and beverage programs, I mean, it seems like you guys would have a very complementary, like, skill sets. I mean, is that really the case? Yeah, I'd say so for sure. And, and a lot of people we've met in the industry, that seems to be a uh, kind of repeated theme that, you know, you got the, the brewing side and then you have someone that can run the business essentially. Right. And, you know, Matt able to run the business and also run front of house, which is something that was lacking in a lot of places early on. It was it was like 2012, maybe that the law changed in Maine, where you could actually run a yeah. tap room. October. It, yeah, it was. It used to be like you know you had to take a tour, and you can only get you know two ounce samples of a few things. And the law changed to allow us to you know essentially operate a bar. And in that, you know, we were I think we were very early on to that. And like right. w- once that law changed, we said this is something we could do. You know, we could start. I and mean, we started with a one and a half barrel system and that's all we operated for probably three years wow you know we just yeah we didn't make a lot of beer but we ran a successful tap room and it allowed us to stay in business and and you know meet our expenses and and yeah it was it was the perfect partnership for that you know because i i wouldn't have known how to run a bar and yeah so yeah it worked out good and um i think i think me and marie actually drove to that spot on the way to like the meetup and it was the, the one, defense attorney, <laughs> right? The place under the DUI defense attorney was that. That was the yeah, original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah our, our landlord is the. Uh, he plans ahead. He's, he's a he's a smart guy. <laughs> he's like, as long as you're making twelve percent beers, then you can move in. Exactly. <laughs> right, okay. Exactly. So I, you know, after my visit, and obviously knowing kind of the history of Maine, I, I mean, I know it's a really competitive craft beer scene. Was it? a challenge to find a way to stand out from the crowd. And is that something that, that you guys talked about when you were conceptualizing barreled souls? Yeah. Um, and that actually relates to the weird building that you drove by where our, our brewery used to be. <laughs> and that was just our, our tap room and very small sour program. Right. Um, is that in the process of opening, we were trying to really do something in a downtown area um, because we wanted to be, you know, everyone's after work bar stop, um, not like in a normal industrial park. And way back when, nine years ago, breweries weren't that cool. So we had a lot of trouble getting into spaces in downtown Portland, ideally. Um, one thing after another just kind of fell through um, for various reasons. And in that time, Bissell Brothers, Foundation, Banded, Austin Street, uh, all opened. And, uh, we started getting a little nervous. We're like, "Oh, are we too late? Right? Are we going to be? Are we going to be too late to this this new game?" Um, shockingly, we were license number forty six uh, in Maine, and now we're over two fifty. So wow. apparently, we're not late at all. Right. Uh, but at that time, it definitely felt a little like that. I think we we're at the, the kind of the, the bottom swing of the boom of breweries opening. Um, so yeah, I think that. That's why we set out to make a bunch of different beers. Uh, when we opened, we had 12 taps uh, the first day we opened. Um, and I think most breweries were at like four or five at that point around us. Um, and then I'll like Chris speak to the weird way that we, or unique way 
that we brewed beer then and still kind of continue to do now. Yeah, that, that was kind of like my next question. What was the decision to barrel age all of your beers? I mean, was there a void in the market for barrel aged beer up there? Well, it's kind of, so we actually, everything was barrel fermented early on. Right. So okay. we did, it was kind of a take on a bird union system. That was, that was originally what we wanted to do. Right. You know, I'd read about bird unions and uh, the um, uh, Chris White and Jamil Zanishev's book, Yeast, you know, right. and that's, I had gone on like a little feel for it. And, and so we were thinking, you know, that, that might be a, like a unique way to make beer and, and so that, that's that's all we did for the first five or so years. But we kind of quickly realized we couldn't do a true union system because we wanted to make 24 different types of beers. Right, <laughs> we right. couldn't have them all going into each other. And we went through a lot of iterations of yeast capturing systems. And um, we, you know, kind of, it, it's sort of a way to top crop yeast. Yep. You know, it's, it's a way that sort of forces that and lets the, the beer drain back in and you recapture yeast. And, um, but yeah, so so that was a unique process that we thought would set us apart, but it turned out that most people didn't understand what that was at all. <laughs> so, but the, with barrel aged beer, that's definitely something that we immediately started filling barrels because that's that's what we love and that's what we've always wanted to do. Um, and it is it is a niche market in Maine. You know, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't think it would be in a cold climate, but it's you know, there's other places to do it now, but it's not as it's still to, today. It's not as common as you might think it would be. No, uh, no. I mean, like we've we were very heavy, and then obviously pandemic era, like it dipped, and now we're getting back on track into the barrel aging program. But it, that was for me always was like a big thing, like to always barrel age beers. Not a lot of people still do it down here. There's not, you know what I mean. I think it's still select people around the country that kind of dedicate that for barrel aging yeah. a good chunk of their their production. I mean, to do 100% of it is definitely, I mean, even more so. Um, but it's funny, you talk about the Burton Union system, and, and I, that is something I always wanted to do as well. And the only ones that I knew that were doing it in the United States at that time were Firestone Walker. And they do it with their, like, their union pale ale. I mean, essentially, you're basically filling about a, it's a chain of barrels that all kind of ferment into one or another. I mean, it's like a cascading effect as they ferment yeah. and push into the next barrel, push into the next barrel, and just keep on going. But it's, like like you said, it, that, that's a harder thing to kind of pull off than, than, I mean, the one is there, but I think it's 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 a feat for sure to try to do something like that. Yeah, and you, you open yourself up to a lot of risk. You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it kind of, it, it ties back to my, like, roots with the Peter Austin brewing system with the Ringwood when everything was open fermented. And right. the way we harvested yeast there is we would just take a dish pan and scoop yeast off the top and throw it in a plastic trash can that was sanitized, <laughs> of course. But that's how you harvested yeast. Yeah. Right. I remember when the, the first time I went in there, I, you know, I'm reading homebrew books and it's like sanitation, this, and, you know, Charlie Papazian and all that. It's like sanitation is godliness, you know? And, right. And then you go in there and it's all just open. And he's like, here's a bucket, scoop it off, and then we'll use it for the next batch. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, do I have to yeah. wear a suit or something? I don't know. Right. Uh, but, but that yeast is so aggressive. It just, that thing, that, that stuff just mows through anything, I, you know, as long as you pitch enough of it. And, right. Right. <laughs> but... And so, so having that background, I was like, oh, Burton Union would be no problem, you know. And, and so, you know, we started to have some issues with it as, as years went on. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're a little bit mixed now with, with how we ferment things. But, but it, was, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a fun time. And our, our fears about it being the first one to market with a Burton Union system were not valid fears. <laughs> we're still waiting for someone else to show up and do it. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean... Since you guys opened in 2014, you guys have garnered, like, a ton of acclaim for your barrel-aged stouts, barley wines, and sours. How have your offerings changed, if at all, from 2014? And do you guys really pay any attention to beer trends? Uh, We definitely pay attention to our customers, which I think are a little more skewed specifically to us. I mean, I think we sell probably as much barley wine or wheat wine or whatever iteration of barley wine right. um, as anyone else does uh, maybe in the country. Um, probably Firestone makes a little more stuff, but that our customers kind of have their own trends um, that are entirely separate from the, the mainstream beer business, but a little different. And 
I think the biggest thing that we saw is initially anything barrel age was good, and then everything had to have adjuncts in it. Right. We couldn't make a clean stout or even really a clean barley wine um, for a little while and have any great sales. You know, it started out being like, oh, we put coffee or vanilla, or when we put marshmallow in a beer for the first time nearly eight years ago now, it was like, oh, this is crazy. Then a few years afterwards, it was like, oh, you just put two adjuncts in? Right. Anything less than four or five adjuncts is not acceptable. Right. Um, and now we're actually seeing a big swing back, which is super exciting for us because we obviously want to give our customers what they want. And we have a business with the point of giving our customers what they want and also making money. So you have to provide them with the beer they want to drink at the moment. But it's swinging more back right now, for us at least, to they want barrel-aged stouts, barley wines, et cetera, with nothing in them. They want beer right. that actually just tastes like the beer and hopefully the delicious whiskey that you emptied right. out or whatever the spirit was um, and not so much of the, you know, all the nuts, right. vanilla, right. marshmallow, fruits that you had to do a few years ago. Right. No, I, I'm seeing that as well. Um, seeing where guys want single adjuncts. They want the barrel to shine. I mean, that kind, yeah. of, co- that kind of concept and idea hasn't been around for five six years yeah but we we did that whole uh gauntlet which was straight just barrel aged beer beer zero no adjuncts, adjuncts yeah. and people went crazy for it yeah i mean that we, was what five years ago i mean that was a feat because four I had, years ago uh five five years ago i mean that was a feat to try to procure eight different barrels from eight different distilleries to and not all of them matching some were rye some were bourbon but just i mean that was a feat just to try to do that but i think the end product always pays off you know when you do that but and then the blend was i mean it was also it was like it was kind of a gamble because it was at that time like when you were saying like oh you're there's no adjuncts in this like what do you mean oh this can't be that good it doesn't have peanut butter marshmallow vanilla chocolate you know whatever else you could throw in it, you know, five, six, seven adjuncts at a time. And it was like, it's still sold, but I think with a lot of things like that, what I'm seeing and hearing is that we're swinging back to the basis of beer, of wanting to taste that beer out of a barrel without it being covered up by something else. Yeah, it's always, anytime we empty barrels, it's always like the the brewers, everyone's like, like this is so great as is and we're like well this is stay buffed like our marshmallow beer this right. is going to be we just made te- we call it teotihuacan and it's has chocolate and habaneros in it and and people kind of all you know the guys are like oh, i just like it how it is and we're like well this is you know this is what it's going to become but yeah i think people's palates are kind of coming around to that the nuance of the barrels and the, and the spirit that was in it before paying attention to what you know what bourbon was in it right. you know what what rye was in it? Not not just that it's rye. It's like which one, you know? And exactly. then what? what do we, yeah, which yeah, is it's great. It's like I love that. So I mean, we just we did a very small bottle release, but we released a straight barrel aged barley wine, which was actually very well received. Which rye? You guys do? Uh, it was a Willet rye barrel aged barley wine, and it was very well received. But it was weird to see because I, I mean I love the barley wines you guys do because I know you guys kill it and I've tasted them and they're amazing. But, like, that's another beer style that's kind of gone up and down. So for me to see that kind of reaction for people to come out and buy just a non-adjuncted barrel-aged beer, specifically a barley wine, is actually great hope to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's super exciting. I mean, that's pretty much Chris and I's favorite style to drink. Um, I think a lot of other brewers kind of always joke when we go to bottle shares and stuff now and everybody, you know, just trying a little bit of this and that, but everyone's, you know, drinking Pilsners or, or right. the new session ale because that's probably the responsible thing to do. <laughs> and Chris and I are like going after, you know, just trying to find every barrel of barley wine at the bottle share we can. And people are like, you guys like drink that stuff all the time? And we're like, yeah, it's pretty much all we drink. Um, <laughs> yeah. It may not be healthy, but it's what we like. It's a, 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 I was always a barley wine and a stout guy. And that's still my wheelhouse. So that's where I will remain, like the loggers and stuff. I mean, you know, I drank that when I was in my 20s. You know, plenty enough. So I don't need to drink that anymore. I would. I got a question though. Like, what's your philosophy when you are curating a wine list, tap list, and what are the boxes that you must check to have a killer list? You would say. Hmm, that's a that's a good question. Uh, yeah. So we're up to we have twenty two taps now, uh, pretty much all the time at the uh, brewery and. Uh, 
kind of shifts a little from summer to winter time. We get a little bit heavier, um, obviously when it gets 20 degrees outside. Um, but that's kind of also been dictated by our customers. Um, I think when we opened, we were probably about like half pale ales and IPAs, a couple like fruited sours, um, and a couple big beers. And now we usually have one, maybe two IPAs or pale ales on tap. Um, and about 10 sours and then a mix of barley wines, stouts, scotch ales, uh, old ales and whatnot, um, to hopefully give everyone that comes in a mix of what they want from barreled souls. Um, cause I think we've really become predominantly a fruited sour, um, and big barrel aged beer, um, brewery. We still make IPAs and pills. I think there, there's a necessity to have something kind of light, easy right. drinking, right. um, when you're trying to operate a bar, basically, you don't want to isolate people that be like, oh, this is too much alcohol for me or too much fruit or whatever. I just want a beer that tastes like a simple kind of beer from five years ago, um, made well. And so trying to keep that balance on the list and trying to keep every beer drinker happy is really important to us because we want everyone to come to our place and have a good time and be able to hang out with their friends and enjoy what they want to enjoy. So I got a question. Chris, so like you guys obviously started in that smaller location and now we've been to your new newer location. How much production were you guys doing out of this space under the uh the defense attorney for DUIs and now at your your new location? Uh so yeah, the first, we opened in July of 2014. That first year we did 86 barrels of beer, beer barrels. So pretty big. Um and then by the time we left that facility, we were about three fifty a year um, for barrel production, and we were selling almost all of that just out of tap room. Um, and now that we're in this new space, we've slowly ramped up every year, but we'll finish this year uh, right between fourteen hundred and fifteen hundred barrels. Nice um, of production, which is uh, for us is a really great place to be. I think we might you know add another hundred or two hundred barrels in the next couple of years, um, but we're really focusing on trying to get more big barrel aged beer going longer aging, double barrels, triple barrel aging, um, so that we can kind of like play around with that, those flavor profiles a little bit more. Whereas as you're building up, as you know, and anybody with a brewery, when you're stacking barrels in the corner to age for a year or two, you're just, you're piling up money. Oh, I know. Um, yeah. That's capital. Yeah, yeah. And you, you need that to operate. So there's that, there's been a balance of that for years. And now we're, we're at a, a feeling like we're at a very good point where we can, really push more money into that program of really extending aging stuff, not be like, all right, we got to sell this because we need something to sell right now. Right. Even though maybe we'd like to get some like amazing Willow barrels that just got off to us and we could double barrel age it. But pre the last probably year, we felt like, no, we got to get that out. We can't, we can't transfer it to another barrel and make it an even hopefully better beer. Um, we need the sales capital to keep going. Nice. Nice. So I, I guess really kind of, to kind of wrap this up and kind of last question is what's next for you guys? What, what's next for barreled souls? What do you guys see on the horizon? Like is, is really like the next step for you? That's a good question. Uh, we're not the biggest planners to be honest. Um, yeah. <laughs> you mean like this week, John? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hey, what do we got going on this week? You know, I mean, yeah, no. Uh, yeah. Uh, we're definitely pretty happy uh, where we are. And uh, I think, yeah, literally just trying to make more um, more and better barrel-aged beers um, with, you know, more longevity uh, in the barrel, um, being able to play around with more um, different barrels and stuff and uh, kind of really focus on that part of our craft and um, really just make our bottle membership as good as possible and really – cater to those people um, in every way we can to make their enjoyment of barreled souls uh, the height of what it can be. Because I think as, you know, whatever we're up to, nearly 10,000 breweries now, you really have to do something to capture your audience and keep your audience. Um, Because there's always a new brewery. There's always someone expanding into your market. Um, So your core customers should really be taken care of, in our opinion. Um, so that they're your customers, um, not just they're picking a beer off the shelf. It doesn't matter if it's you or not. Right. I agree. I absolutely agree with that. Well, uh, thank you guys very much for joining us today. This is, uh, it's always fun to talk to you guys and, uh, good to see you guys again. And, uh, I'm sure it'll, we will see you guys again soon. Hopefully. I mean, beyond Wakefest in, in February this year, 
It's co- I mean next year. So it, we're, we're yeah. moving it back to February. It's not going to be uh, hot hot April anymore. So no, perfect. It's perfect for us. It's a good yeah. time to come to Miami for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, thank you very much, and uh, hope you guys have a good uh, good day. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest is the co-founder of Fooder Crafters of America, based in Fallon, Missouri. Upon its founding in 2014, Fooder Crafters of America became first ever U.S. manufacturers of fooders. Since then, their business has boomed, riding the wave of growth in the craft beer industry and the popularity of sour beers in tap rooms across the country. What's a fooder, you ask? You're about to find out. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Matt Walters and Dan Setley. Thank you very much for joining me today. And, Thanks for having us. And joining Maria as well here. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> so the story kind of goes that you and Justin Safel, I mean, designed like and built the bar at Heavy Rift Brewing in St. Louis, which Justin owned. Is that where you two first met? Yeah, so... Chris Carpenter, the baseball player, and I, we, we were thinking about opening a brewery. Okay. And he's my homebrew home brew buddy. So we, oh, wow. we brewed uh, like in, from like 2009, like three times a week on a, a little three-tier, you know, 12-barrel system okay. or 12-gallon. 12, 12 okay. And so um, we were going to open a brewery, and so we figured we'd buy 10% of uh, – brewery that was open to watch them open kind of help them out i would build a bar um chris would give them a little publicity um but basically we wanted to go from amateur hour to scaling up our our recipes and um at at that time i was really interested in filtration because chris made this well chris and i made this beer that was extremely turbid right and he loved it. He just he was like, this this is going to be our flagship beer. And I'm like, that's the <laughs> ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, no one's going to drink that, right? For <laughs> symmetry, uh, symmetry, theology, religion, and and the gods will s- smite me if I even begin to make a, like a, a hazy, hazy beer. turbid beer. Yeah. But he loved it. He loved it. He was like consistent. He's like, this is amazing. There's no bitterness. Anyway, so I was really, really interested in filtration. I'm like, how do I make that same beer and just get rid of all that that haze? turbidity? Yeah. Um, but when we when we bought the when we bought the ten percent of the brewery and uh, we we um, I met Justin and at that point I was starting to meet brewers and they were like, could you build a? They knew I was a wood guy, um, so they they were like can you build a fooder? And I was like, is it out of wood? And they're like, yes. And I said, then yes. Shockingly, like we got some orders, like people were like sending in brewers. There's just like sending in a check with like, and it was weird because <laughs> like brewers are unlike anyone else. They're nicer. It's crazy. So I had all these deposit checks and I, so I, I was like, I gotta, I gotta start making some fooders. So, so, I mean, was it your idea? To just it was, start it, making fooders? I mean, beyond that, like, and start this whole business itself after that, all the deposits came in? It, it was Justin's idea. He, he's, a, he's like, let's start a fooder business. And I was like, you know, he's like, all these people are talking about it. And, you know, you can build one. So let's let's go build one. And so we went and we, the first one we built was like a sprinkler system. It was just, just, <laughs> you know, it was, it was unbelievably, like, even today, like like Dan and I will fill eight eight fooders right with right. no leaks, and it's it literally like puts me on my knees, and I'm just like I just I can't believe it, you know, like I have total founder syndrome, where like I I remember the the first every single failure all the way back, and <laughs> wow. but um Corey Corey King bought the first fooder, and. You know, several times I, I've asked him to, that, you know, I'll replace that fooder. You know, that was my some of my earliest work. He's like, stay away from it. That's my best food style, you know. <laughs> don't, don't even look at it, you know, basically. Yeah. I'm, not allowed, I'm not allowed with it. I think there's a restraining order. So I'm not allowed anywhere near it. Um, That's amazing. But anyway, um, so a- after Corey bought it, then we started getting orders. I, I literally got a check, like a $10,000 check from somebody with – 
no information, no, just a check in an envelope. And I open it and like I figure out who it is and I call them and they're like, just put me in the queue. Of course, I didn't have a queue. Right. Um, And I just, you know, we cranked out a fooder for them. And um, that was like, uh, it it was, that was pretty amazing, really. It was, uh, and and I was like, that's like the nicest guy in the world. And Corey's the nicest guy in the world. And then after like 10 brewers in a row that were like, like I, I was a builder before that. And like my clients were just miserable. Right. And uh, they love to inflict pain and (laughs) wanted me to apologize for screaming while they're inflicting pain. And, and then all of a sudden like I'm dealing with brewers that are just kind and totally different uh, atmosphere. Yeah. It was, it was just so amazing. So uh, at that point we, Jess and I pivoted the business and just said, let's focus just on brewers um, for our own sanity and also because brewers care about cost and, um, and, 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 you know, wine people, they don't really care about costs right. at all. So, do you, uh, um, and they don't mind having like a little grassy, weird French oak taste in there. So I, I got a question though, like, cause I, I, I obviously have some of your work here in the brewery. Like how, how did you learn to make a fooder? Like, I mean, it blows my mind. I see your workmanship cause I have one. Like, I'm like, how do you go from, like, not knowing at all and and having some kind of conceptual idea to actually, like, building them? Like, to me, that's, like, that's amazing. Go ahead, Dan. Let me jump in here because Matt's probably underselling himself a little bit. He's a bit of an inventor and a maker of things. He's been doing that his whole life, basically. I mean, I don't know how many businesses and different things you've started and done and – I think that kind of plays a lot into how you started fooders. Yeah. That's a background. I, I like to build, I like to design things in my head. Um, and we had to dry some, we had to dry the wood for about, um, we dry it for about two years now, but at that point I needed to get it over a year because I tried to do it with some uh, kiln dried wood and, and the stuff is just, um, it's filled with voids. It's like you microwave something and it just puffs up and gets ugly. And so it had to be dried. And so I had a year to build it in my head, then rebuild it and rebuild it and rebuild. And I kind of built it enough times that really like the second fooder is the one that Corey King has. So it, it's, um, the first, the first one was, um, Justin wanted to make a, a 30 barrel fooder for five grand. Jeez. And so we did everything wrong and I knew it was wrong. I was like, we're going to try, but it's, you know, the, we need to use the most expensive wood cut in the most expensive way, dried in the most expensive way. And he's like, can we just try not all those things? And so we tried and it was just, uh, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a sprinkler system. So <laughs> absolutely no fire. like, the fire department would be pleased with that. Um, I mean, if you guys but, were still selling thirty barrel fooders for five grand, I'd be. I mean, let me know. <laughs> not, not if it's a sprinkler so, so system. Then, so, so then we were like, okay, well, we're gonna make. We'll do it for eleven eleven thousand. We'll just, you know, do it do it right. So that was kind of the process. Um, nice, nice. Um, so I have a question, Dan. So along this timeline. How did you get involved, and what made you kind of jump in and want to get involved and take over? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was a commercial lender. Matt, they had fooder coffers outgrown the their old shop, uh, so he was looking for a new building. And when he come came and found this building, right. came to me and I gave him a loan for it. Um, and the first time I walked in after they moved into this place, I was just like, "Holy crap, this is awesome!" I had never seen a fooder before i guess maybe i had maybe it's side project but you know i've never been in the shop and i love woodworking and doing that kind of stuff love beer and i just fell in love the first time i came in and man i i think i spent more time at this place than i did in the office for a while i would just come over anytime any chance i got yeah got to know the guys got to know matt really well and uh kind of got sick of banking it was oh i feel you it was getting 
this was about uh, about when COVID started, I mean, a little before COVID started, but okay. when COVID started, I'm like, oh, I, I got to get out of this. This is miserable. So that's when we, I made the plunge and, and uh, came here full time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, was, yeah Dan kind of whispered in my ear, I'm going to buy this place. Like first first day, I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and, and I'm so terrible at running a business, frankly, um, you know, like Dan dedicated, like he, he was, he, I either, he was here. Or I, you know, we, we spent a lot of time together and, um, and normally I hate bankers. Like I just, right. You know, but Dan wasn't a banker. He was like a banker looking for a business. And, uh, oh, okay. Um, yeah, like I, I, I literally had a design, um, for a whole ring in hell just for like bankers and plumbers, you know, people are going <laughs> to, okay prey on you when you're like in, at your worst, yes. you know, like, yep. um, and then just say no, you know? Right, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so Dan wasn't like that. And, uh, yeah, so I got like, there's, there's a, very few exceptions for this design, uh, this, the, the 13th ring in hell that I've designed, but, uh, Dan will not be in that. In nice. That. Nice. So, I got a question. So just maybe for our listeners, uh, you know, on Sirius, Sirius XM here, can you explain kind of like what a fooder is and the, the purpose of the fooder in, in a brewery's involvement? Sure. Well, um, I, okay, hold on. M- Maria, do you want to, I mean, because. Are you going to say I, the French, French the, the pronunciation? The French pronunciation because that's where. Food. Foudre. Yeah. So what is the purpose of a fooder? So um, I always go with the. The Dutch, the Dutch um, pronunciation of fooder because um, um, Peter Buchart is like yes. a hero of mine. Yes. And um, by the way, if I get a, um, I'm allergic to something. I don't know what, but my face swells up, my lips swell up, and I look just like Peter Buchart <laughs> to the to a T. So like maybe like one of my other personalities or one of my voices. It's Peter Buchart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One time, Peter got into uh, we we made a um, we made a, uh, a cool ship, an oak cool ship. Oh wow! And uh, um, for Gabe up in Alaska, and and when Peter was busy, he just walked in, took off his clothes, and got into the got into the uh, into the cool, cool ship. ship. Oh my gosh! And like I got a photo of like uh, you know the, the the side of the cool ship was acting as the fig leaf, and I. I uh, got a photo of it there. I was like, yeah, this, this guy is awesome. But uh, so anyway, that's why I use uh, pronounced fooder, fooder, um, use the Dutch present, uh, pres- uh, pronunciation. But um, so a fooder, a fooder is, it's an oak. Um, so it's in a, it, it's, it's basically, um, it's a huge, like say um, a thousand gallon oak, barrel it's um usually like five feet in diameter and seven feet tall or something in that range whatever there's a lot any size but um when and this and 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 this is this is this is what i'm about to say is my opinion but i believe that um all the yeast strains that we are using nowadays all their their ancient gene pools all come from being in oak. Okay. And so what, what for me a fooder is, is you're saying to a, and also they were, a lot of them were in the, in the cellar and cave temperatures. Right. Um, so if you take an, if you take a, 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 a yeast strain and you put it in, in, in cellar temperatures in oak, you've put, you've put this wild, beautiful thing into its original habitat and its okay. original habitat for some reason is just what it wants. Right. So I originally thought that we, we that the oak would ingress air, but that just made vinegar. Um, really a proper fooder really is, uh, airtight seal, you know, sealed, fer- sealed fermentation vessel. Basically it's a sealed fermentation vessel. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's what was used. I mean, I mean, 100% of the time before the Industrial Revolution, stainless right. steel. Right. I yeah. mean, if you go back in the history of beer, everything was aged and fermented in wood. 
I mean, right. that, that's what it was. I mean, we're kind of so, basically taking it back into time. Day and age with people wanting to kind of get back to roots and use artisan things. I mean, going back to wooden vessels is kind of the yeah. it's the logical step. I, I think you know the the original IPA was made in oak and yes. shipped in oak around the you yes. know to, to India and um, you know some of our local brewery, brewers make just beautiful fooder age IPAs. And, and these, it's like, they're softer, they're rounder. Yep. They're, there's something that's just, just for me, I, and this is probably scientifically not at all based, but I think that the, uh, the fooder is just, it's a, it's a, the proper habitat. Right. Well, I could tell you guys that the difference between the loggers that we brew and ferment into your fooder crafter versus what is done in stainless is completely different i mean yeah. there there it's is this roundness better. oh yeah there's like this pillowy uh, yeah. 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 uh oak oh, kind yeah. of layer oh it's beautiful yeah i think i think thing. i think the pillowy pro- is the nicest thing pillowy is the nicest compliment thank yes. you i think <laughs> I, I believe that the product coming out of the wood i mean and people taste it and they're like oh yeah this is completely different than this stainless age so you can taste just the nuances and the flavor profiles are to me much better coming out of the wood than than yeah. out of the stainless. Totally agree. The uh, we've, I mean, I don't know how many fooder loggers we've tried over the past two years as we can build more and more of those tanks. But man, they're so good. And and I know it's you know a lot of brewers don't want to mess with it, and it's just you know it's more work to use wood and the cleaning yeah. and all that. But man, it's good. And the, I, I think the, it's uh, worth the, it. I think the product is worth it in the end. Absolutely. Yeah. How long does it take you guys on average? To build a fooder, well, it used to take. I I could build a fooder, like in like two years of drying and then two weeks of building. Oh wow! And now you know Dan's filled filled like a building. um, You know he's got like five years of of wood drying and and um, and our crew can you know knock one out in a day. Wow. Wow, we can pretty much build one in a day, and then it takes a week to do the finishing and testing and fill it, and right? Steam so, it. So, so what's the queue like if I wanted to order another fifteen barrel conical? Like, what's my what's my wait time nowadays? You think we're, we're ready we're to like, ship? We're ready to ship. Well, yeah, we have some ready to ship for sure. <laughs> you guys are ready to roll you, already. Okay, you can okay. have one in a week. Yeah. <laughs> oh, literally. I mean, since since COVID uh, happened, we. When, when we were slow then, we, we did build up a stock of a lot of them. But, I mean, if we have to build a custom one from scratch right now, we're at like six to eight weeks. Okay. I would say, I would say, that, I would say that 95% of the negative feedback, the complaints that I ever had were all to do, having to do with our, our shipping, our, right. our truck, you know, using these common carriers. And um, yeah, freight's my brother-in-law was like, yeah, I'll, I'll deliver them for you. I was like, what? So... Now, now, like everyone, everyone likes him, and and uh, he's he's like he's probably knows more breweries, and <laughs> he, he like he just drives around the country delivering food. That's, that's all awesome. he does. That's, that's awesome. his only job. So um, that's kind of made the business like a hundred times less um, tense because it right. felt like we we could get to the one yard line successfully, but. Man, when we hit the one yard line, we would the common carriers would just abuse us and right. Uh, right. Yeah, they they they've so got. Anyway, out of that's that's been kind of a, a nice a nice thing. But if you if just throwing this out there, you know, if you ever run into Doug out there delivering fooders, he's like super quiet and nice, and he he deserves a few beers. You, okay. If, if you don't want to buy him a beer, you can buy him a beer and then send me the bill. I'll, I'll pay it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hey, Dan, I, I got a question, though. So now that this company is, is at where it's at, can you tell us about, like, the company's reach, like how many states and countries, like, your fooders are in? Yeah, we are in, I think, 48 states. We're missing either North Dakota or South Dakota oh, well. and Mississippi. Oh, Mississippi, okay. That, that's it. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know, maybe 15 countries around the world. Lately, we've been shipping a lot to Asia. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of, we're obviously we're focused in the States, but we're 
kind of worldwide at this point. That's amazing, man. That is amazing yeah, growth. I mean, it, is it? I mean, it probably must be an awesome feeling and sight to see that it started with these deposit checks kind of coming in, like just blank checks coming in for these things to be from that to where you are now. It, yeah. it it's it's mind blowing. It's it to see like and and like the how tight the tolerances are. Um, you know how right. like. It's the stuff that the guys are doing in the shop that, I mean, they, I probably built, I probably built a hundred fooders myself. Okay. So as a craftsman, can you describe the feeling you get when one of your fooders is complete and ready to be shipped and packaged like packages shipped out? It's, it's sort of this feel like I always like touch the fooders and I have hundreds of photos of our, of my clients touching the fooders and hugging the fooders and, dressing their fooders up for Halloween, like Christmas trees or something. That's awesome. but, um, there's something that's when you make, when you make something um, like a violin or a, um, or really anything, anything that has uh, the warmth of wood and it's, um, it's a tactile thing. It's a, it's, it's like a, uh, it's like a, you, you got to touch it to, to understand. And you feel you that. touch it, yeah. help but touch it when you walk by. It. And yeah. then you look at, and then it becomes like something that it's like, once it's perfect, once it's made perfectly, it's like even the flaws are added to it somehow. Right. So, it it took it took a few it took a a few, um, probably I'd say twenty fooders before I felt that way about the fooders. But after after that, they they they, they were. I, and I always run it when I run into my first, my clients that are my first 10 clients, you know, I always, you know, I, I, I always just want to replace those first. <laughs> because the product, you know the product, product yeah. The product I you mean, have now versus what it was back then is better and more yeah. fine tuned and everything else. Yeah. But, As a craftsman that makes beer, you, you know what we feel when, oh, yeah. when we make one and, and ship it out. Like yeah. it's just, you're so proud of it and, I mean, for us, it's it's got a, kind of another layer because once we ship it here, a lot of the times we get to taste what comes out of it, and that just makes you know makes it that much better. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, that's awesome. Well, thank you guys very much for joining us today. This has been awesome, and thank you very much for all the input and you know all the knowledge about fooders. And it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you guys on the show. Thank, thank you. you, thank you so much. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Matt Mills, Chris Schofield, Dan Sadel, and Matt Walters, our co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thanks for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real.